What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Rewired Soul Podcast. It is episode two, and I hope you enjoyed uh, the first episode. I got a lot of, you know, awesome feedback. I was surprised at how many people <laughs> listened to, uh, you know, my conversation with Stuart Ritchie and all the subscribers, like, you know, who want to listen to episodes like this and all the upcoming authors that I'm talking to. But yeah, if you're not yet, if you're not yet, Make sure you're following me over on social media at The Rewired Soul uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I have a lot of cool stuff going on. I have a lot of amazing authors coming up, like the author today who I'm about to introduce. But anyways, make sure you're following me over on social media. And, and if you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor. Make sure you're subscribed to it on Apple or following it on Spotify or whichever platform uh, tickles your fancy. You know what I mean? So you don't miss any of the episodes. But anyways... Today, today, my guest is Jillian York. So she she recently wrote a book called Silicon Values, right? And it's about social media platforms and ethics in the industry. And I couldn't wait for the book to come out. I was waiting for it for months. When it came out, I finally read it. And Jillian and I had actually, you know, started following each other on Twitter. And I binged her book. And it opened my eyes to so many things uh, around the world when it comes to social media. Uh, I'm sure most of you watched that documentary that came out last year on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And you know, my, my lovely girlfriend and I, we watched it and I was sitting there like most of the time, I was like, wait, does, does the average person not really know about all these things that social media is doing? Like do, do people not pay attention to like the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And, you know, sometimes I'm a victim of the curse of knowledge too, because not only do I create content on the social media platforms, but when I'm not talking to you amazing people on this podcast, I also, you know, I work in like marketing and stuff like that. And we are involved with social media. So I know how both sides work as a content creator and an advertiser, but there are social issues going on. And Jillian York, discusses those, but not just what's going on in the United States, but what's going on on uh, you know, a more global scale when it comes to social justice and activism. And what I absolutely love about Jillian and this conversation is that she doesn't have this black and white thinking. When it comes to these topics and the ethical questions and moral questions, you know, it's it's much more nuanced than some people like to believe. But anyways, anyways, I'm talking too much in this intro. This is an amazing conversation with Jillian York. I hope you enjoy it. And be sure, after you're done listening, check out the description down below to follow her over on uh, platforms like Twitter and check out her book, Silicon Values. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the amazing Jillian York. Jillian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I was waiting for your book for months, and I'm so glad that I was finally able to read it because there's such great conversations around social media and what's going on and how the world's changing. So anyways, first question. In comparison to other books on the subject of like surveillance capitalism and the flaws of social media... I really enjoyed your book in comparison, right? So something I learned with the rise of the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, 
was that not many people knew what was going on. And I originally thought this was, you know, well known that they were, you know, looking at our data and using it to target advertisements and, you know, show us, you know, whatever will keep us engaged on the platform as long as possible. So when you're writing a book like this or articles on this subject, who would you say is your target audience? Is it people interested in the subject or people who aren't as familiar with how social media is affecting social issues? Also, what would you say is the overall goal of your book? Is it to more like encourage action, increase awareness, or a combination of the two? So my target audience is usually the average person. Um, you know, when I give talks, I'm often speaking to an audience of people who, who know something about the subject or who work in my field. Um, but when I write, I often choose to write for outlets that have a, a less technical audience. Um, and I do that because I want people to understand more about this, um, especially since 2016 there's been kind of a rash of interest in the subject um, and also a considerable amount of mis and disinformation around it. Um, so it's really important to me to create nuanced arguments that help people understand, really persuasive arguments. So with the book itself, um, I, I wanted to write something that spoke to both like people in my field, um, people with a knowledge of the subject, but also, you know, your average person. And the feedback I'm getting says that I did a pretty good job of that. Um, so yeah, the overall goal of the book is really to increase awareness, um, educate people, and get people more interested in engaging on this subject. Because I really truly believe that we're not going to solve these problems by leaving it up to lawmakers. Um, we have to get people, the public, involved in decision making um, and in action. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, awareness is huge. It's absolutely huge because, you know, especially as a parent, it's interesting to me that more people like I'm a millennial and I'm like, how do you not really, you know, know about all of this stuff? But don't get me wrong. There was a ton, a ton on, you know, global issues and activism around the world that I definitely learned from your book. So that was extremely helpful. But yeah, anyways, I, I hope more people, the average person, you know, picks up your book and really educates themselves uh, about these, these social platforms. So yeah, so uh, next question. I haven't been a fan of how social media platforms are used or ran for a while now, and you know, like I'm not alone. So people like you and I, there, there are plenty of people who have criticisms of how big tech manages social media, but we still use it. And, you know, how I found you was on Twitter. You're fairly active on Twitter. And I'm curious if you ever experienced, like, cognitive dissonance about how you use social media, even though there are problems with these platforms. I face the same thing on a regular basis, and I think it's common for authors as well. Like, for example, I've read books from authors who write about, uh, you know, the massive justifiable criticisms of someone like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, but they still promote their book on Amazon because that's the number one place for an artist, uh, an author rather, to put their book. So do you feel like we're all stuck in this paradox where we have to use these platforms that are highly flawed? And how do you think that affects the platform's decisions to change 
if the platforms will be used regardless of those criticisms. Yeah, I definitely feel cognitive dissonance um, about social media. I mean, here's the thing. I came up on social media more than a decade ago when, you know, a lot of people were really excited about the promise of it, um, when people believed that this was going to change the world, and when there was a lot of really interesting activism and campaigning happening. And then, of course, you know, as I write in the book, over the years, it's really kind of gone downhill. Um, you know, these companies used to try at least um, to engage with people to promote free expression. And, you know, a number of factors led to the, these companies becoming much more, um, what's the word, um, inward facing, more isolated, more U.S. centric or U.S. and Euro centric. Um, and so at the same time, it's really important to me to keep using these platforms because they help me reach new audiences. Um, a lot of the people who follow me on Twitter, for example, are outside of the United States and outside of Europe. Um, and I think that, you know, being able to connect to people in a variety of different countries, especially across the global South, is really important to me um, because I think a lot of the next stage of innovation is going to come from those parts of the world. It already is, really. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think it's really common for authors, really common for, for folks who, who, you know, for thinkers, basically anybody who's a thinker. Um, and then, yeah, just, um, wow, it's a complex question. It's a good one though. Um, do I feel we're stuck in a paradox? Yes, I do feel that we're kind of stuck in a paradox here. I've written about this a few times, um, especially every time the, the boycott Facebook issue comes up. Um, but one of the things that I'm excited about is the fact that we're seeing more and more new platforms with different types of privacy and content moderation practices. And I think that that does empower us to leave behind some of the more problematic platforms, the ones with more problematic policies. Um, and then lastly, I mean, I think that we have to consider each platform differently, that some platforms are changing the way that they think, they are changing their policies, while others, you know, like Facebook are just becoming more and more entrenched in their own ideologies. Um, and so I, I do feel like on the one hand, maybe these platforms would be more likely to change if people were to leave them. And yet at the same time, companies like Facebook own so many different property properties. Um, they even own the, own the fiber and the data connections in some cases. And so, you know, if Facebook.com loses all of its followers or users tomorrow, um, Facebook will still make money because they have so many other properties on the internet. And that's always something that we have to consider as well. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed how, how you said that too. Like, you know, these platforms, they give us the ability to reach new audiences. Like there's no doubt that, you know, as authors or creators or anybody trying to share ideas and have conversations, social media is where you can do it. And especially during a, a pandemic, it's not like, you know, we were able to do public spe speaking engagements, but yeah, it's, it's tricky how we have to kind of navigate these waters. But I think, you know, it's definitely something that we need to all come to terms with that you can, you can hold both ideas with that dissonance, right? Like, I don't agree with what these platforms do or everything that these platforms do, but I do see their utility and I use them because I'm trying to, you know, like you were saying about your book, like increase awareness or encourage action or change or, you know, whatever that may be. So, yeah, um, next question. I was thinking back in 2020, 
it was really interesting uh, as I looked at like the psychology of conspiracy theories, as well as books around critical thinking. And I made YouTube videos debunking various uh, conspiracy theories. And one was about QAnon and their conspiracies about COVID. And YouTube wrongfully took my video down while leaving up the video with the misinformation. And it was only reinstated after I was able to get the press involved. Uh, I was actually interviewed by Insider, right? So although I'm not the only creator this has happened to, and it's a major problem, I realized, you know, it's impossible for YouTube or any platform for that matter to perfectly moderate, right? So, you know, like YouTube, they have 500 hours of content uploaded every single minute. It's impossible for them to have enough staff to thoroughly review each piece of content. And like you mentioned in your book, different people from different cultures make decisions of what content is or isn't acceptable. So with the sheer amount of content posted on YouTube and these other platforms, what do you think is a practical solution for these platforms to moderate their content? Like, is this even a realistic expectation to have enough employees to moderate all of that content? This is the perfect question. Really well said. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> I don't believe that content moderation is possible at scale. Um, and you, the example that you give here about debunking conspiracy theories is such a common one. Um, because these companies are increasingly employing automation algorithms to moderate content, we're seeing a lot of really ridiculous errors happening, um, not just around misinformation where they're taking down the people debunking it instead of the people promoting it, but also around harassment, people clapping back or talking back to their harassers, um, terrorism where people are engaged in counter speech, especially in locales like you know Lebanon, Pakistan, places where Terrorism is kind of part of daily life and people are trying to engage productively in changing things. Um, I mean, obviously, this kind of exists all over the world with different types of um, what Facebook would call dangerous organizations. But so, yeah, there's a lot of that kind of error happening. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, um, and as I wrote about in the book, there's a cultural issue here, too, because people have different ideas about what's acceptable. And so I think that practically speaking, there's a couple things that need to happen. One is that we need to accept that there's going to be different models for moderation, that Facebook's model will look very different from, say, Ravel Ravelry, the knitting site, or Reddit, or Pinterest. Um, I think that it's not a realistic expectation to have enough employees to moderate all the content, so we have to rethink how we do this, and that can be finding models such as Reddit's that enable volunteer participation. Um, you know, we can maybe find ways to monetize that so that it's more engaged volunteer you know, paid folks um, who are not just like hired to do the job, but who are really have a vested interest in it. Um, you know, Wikipedia is a great example of, of this, although folks, they are not paid, but there are other incentives such as, you know, being flown to conferences, things like that. Um, and then I think, you know, automation can be used for some things in conjunction with having a human in the loop. So for example, you can use automation to sort content, but then you should have human decision making after that. That said, you know, I think there's a few other things too. Transparency is really key here. 
Um, the right to remedy, appeals, due process, whatever you want to call it, is really important here, um, as is consent. And this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. But, you know, I think we all realize that, like, many of us signed up for Facebook more than 10 years ago. We agreed to the terms back then. Um, and then that was before community standards even existed. Now, these rules have changed so many times over the years, but I've never accepted the changes. I mean, maybe once or twice. Um, and so making sure that users are constantly aware of the rules is a really great way to mitigate some of these harms. Yes, Jillian, I, I absolutely love how, how you talk about like, it's kind of an unrealistic expectation to moderate all of this content. I, I like that idea of, you know, categorizing things, you know, through automation and then, you know, human review and also incentivizing people and kind of crowdsourcing it like uh, Wikipedia does, you know? And yeah, it's that's something that I think about a lot. Like when you talk about like consent and updating the terms of service, like since since technology came out, right? Like since software came out, I remember just, you know, being a computer nerdy kid and downloading all these programs and everything. And they always had like terms of service. I'd never read it. Like none of us ever read it, right? So when when they're updating this stuff, like I, I think one way that social media platforms can do a better job with their transparency is, you know, they have their whole like legal jargon and everything like that and their updated terms of service, but also like a kind of simplified overview of it. But even that, I guess, needs to be moderated a little bit. Um, I personally follow YouTubers like Roberto Blake and there's some other, you know, content creators who make content for content creators. And, th and whenever there's a major platform update, what they do is they kind of go in and they make a video and they break it down. They kind of, they pick through it. They do that hard work, you know, and kind of break it down for us. Um, so now let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the free speech debate. All right. It's something that came up in your book and I, I really like the way that you talked about it in a very nuanced way. Uh, you, you discuss how freedom of speech and how you use it used to be uh, something that was, massive uh you know in your part as a social media advocate but over time your views changed a little bit i i really respect how you acknowledge that the free speech topic is so nuanced and in your opinion how should these platforms know when free speech is acceptable or when it's crossing some sort of line that may lead to action such as what we saw on january 6th with the insurrection at the capitol like if it was up to you, what free speech would be allowed and what type of speech would be censored? For example, what are your thoughts on Trump's Twitter ban after the insurrection? So, yeah, my view has changed over time. Um, and the reason for that is really more of a pragmatic approach. Um, when I first started out working in this field, I didn't come to it from a First Amendment perspective or even necessarily a human rights perspective. For me, this was a very kind of gut reaction based on my experiences with censorship abroad, um, where it felt really wrong to me um, in my, you know, in my gut um, that corporations, for-profit corporations had this much control over speech. And so over time, I've kind of changed my views from just gaining an understanding of how other people view this, 
how people are impacted by certain speech, um, as well as, you know, just sort of a greater understanding of law, whether we're talking about in the U.S., Europe, other parts of the world, or at the U.N. level, uh, international human rights frameworks. So I think in terms of acceptability, I think that we should rely on human rights frameworks. Um, people have done this really amazing work over the past century, and obviously some of that might change um, as you know, as time goes by, but there, I think Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, ICCPR, um, really lays it out well. Um, you know, it does not allow certain types of hate speech, things that, you know, cross a, uh, that pass a, a three-part test um, toward incitement. Um, it has restrictions for public order. It also has restrictions for morality, and I disagree with that part. But again, these, these um, treaties were created more than half a century ago. So it makes sense that we would want to think about updating them. Um, and then, so I guess if it were up to me, what would be allowed and what type of speech would be censored, I would really look towards what creates real harm for people. Um, I'm always coming from the perspective of the people. And so when we're talking about, you know, incitement to insurrection, I think that that is a clear example of real harm. When we're talking about nudity, who's harmed by it? Um, people who don't want to see nudity should just not look at it. Um, and so I think that that's really um how I would balance it. So what exactly would be allowed? I mean, obviously, you know, anything that's harmful to children, child sexual abuse imagery, none of that would be allowed. No nudity there. But, you know, adults would feel free to express themselves, express LGBTQ identity, um, express their, you know, bodies if they like, because um, they think that access to that kind of education is really important as well. Um, and then to talk just about the Trump Twitter ban and Facebook ban really quickly, I think that's a really tricky one. Um, on the one hand, I think it made sense to shut Trump down um, because of the harm that he was causing. But I also think I've got that kind of cynical look at this because these companies were warned about this for years. And only when he was just a few weeks out of uh, before leaving office, did they do anything? Um, and so that's part of the issue that I have with it. The other part is. I think that there is a reason, a very strong uh, argument for preserving his tweets, even if we don't, you know, even if like we're not allowing him to tweet in the future. He's not the president anymore, so he should be treated just like anybody. Um, and frankly, I think that all users should be treated equally when it really comes down to it. So those are just kind of a few scattered thoughts. But I do think preserving his tweets for the sake of history and being able to look back and study that period in time is really important. So and I hope that someone is doing that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't even realize that uh, some organizations have created kind of like guidelines or a framework of, you know, what, you know, uh, harassment or, you know, harm might look like uh, with that type of speech. But yeah, like you mentioned, you know, you disagree with the morality aspect of it, because something that I, I really started researching and studying, you know, within the last couple of years is like moral philosophy and moral psychology. And yeah, like in your book, you discuss how different people from different parts of the world are reviewing different things and morality here in the United States, hey, just even, not even between the United States and other parts of the world, but even just different parts of the United States, morality from a super liberal part of, you know, California is gonna be different than down South. So it gets a little tricky if we're talking about free speech and morality and stuff like that. But, but yeah, I definitely agree with you. You know, like we need to have these conversations and, in order to make any sort of progress on the free speech conversation, people need to be discussing these things and all that kind of good stuff. So you've been uh, covering social issues, activism, and social media for quite a while now. And like many other people, my passion for social reform 
has been ignited in recent years. But you have a ton of experience witnessing how governments interact with social media companies as well as Google. Personally, whenever I see Congress interviewing people like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, it doesn't seem like they even understand how social media or the internet works. In your opinion, do you think international governments are better than they used to be when it comes to comprehending these digital platforms? If not, what are some solutions governments could implement to have a better understanding of how these platforms work? I think it's 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 really interesting that you've observed this because I have too. Um, I think one thing is I, I do view these people as being very different. I think Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey are, are very different people. Um, for you know, for a number of reasons, I think Jack is you know has more contact with regular folks, including inside of his company. Whereas I think Mark Zuckerberg is sort of isolated in a tower, um, like Rapunzel at this point. Um, and so you know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, this is the only job he's ever held. Um, I'm going to use him as an example, it, not because I you know I mean I think Jack is certainly worthy of criticism, but I think Mark is a really interesting example. We're about the same age. Um, we're both in our mid to late thirties. But he's never held another job. He's never had to pay rent. He's never had to live like a regular person. And so I think that, you know, he might have the technical chops. Um, he certainly, you know, he understands how the Internet works. But I agree that he doesn't have that social understanding. And that's really key. And so, you know, what Facebook needs to do is create some more balance so that the the other people within the company, the engineers, the sociologists, the human rights experts have more of a voice and more of an ability to make decisions. And right now it feels like Mark and a handful of people around him really do have a final say in policy. And that's why we see such poor decision making there. Whereas Twitter, you know, Twitter has a lot of faults, but I've seen I've actually watched as Jack sort of gives up some of that power to other people in the company. And there are some really great people there who've got these backgrounds and the fact that they now have um, a little bit more control over some of the decisions being made is a really positive step in the right direction. So I'm, I'm, I say these things in the hopes that it encourages them to go farther with it. Um, and then lastly, international government's understanding of digital platforms. Um, it depends on the government. So, you know, I mean, I think that there are some governments that had a better understanding a decade ago, like Sweden was one of the early adopters and really had a strong grasp, but now they've become much less of a player in this space. Um, and whereas like the US, you know, I think that um, there's still a real strong lack of understanding amongst progressives and conservatives of how this stuff works. It's baffling to me that, you know, after years of talking about Section 230 and having all of these articles about it, that they still regularly misstate it, people on both sides of the political aisle. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do. I'm not convinced that governments are really better at this um, than they used to be. It depends on the issue, though, of course. Um, I think they've gotten better at surveillance, for example. And then so what are some solutions governments can implement? I mean, you know, I think we've got to think about government also not as a monolith. So there's there's like different organizations that do really amazing trainings for judges, for example. So in Latin America, for example, my colleagues have done some some trainings there for judges. And so you've got judges in the judicial branch who really do understand how these things work, whereas the executive branch of government might not have such a grasp. And so I think that training, that openness to learning, um, which, I mean, you can't just create that, but hopefully we can elect people who have more of an openness to learning. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are some of the solutions that we can provide, um, as well as more international fora. 
for this. I think it's been really difficult in the pandemic because all of these governments are not meeting in person, um, at least not the people who, you know, are really the decision makers. And so um, creating fora for for various decision makers from government from different governments around the world to converse with each other. I mean, I've been in some of these rooms in the past, but I think we've kind of stepped away from that in recent years. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely interesting to see, you know, uh, the differences between how, you know, Jack Dorsey makes his decisions and Mark Zuckerberg makes his decisions. And, and I didn't even, I didn't even realize, you know, they're two different styles and, you know, you, you know, way more about that stuff than I do. And it's interesting that you bring up, you know, just the different life experience that they have, you know, I think, uh, you know, a sign of a great leader is, knowing that they don't know everything and diverting to other people. And that kind of, you know, transitions to what we're talking about with the government is setting up different parts of government or at least having people on your staff or your team who understand these things. And you can have talks and conversations when you're talking about, you know, different potential regulations or how, you know, these, these platforms should be, or, you know, I don't know, uh, the government stepping in and things like that. You need people who are actually on these platforms. But yeah, some of the conversation I watch around that when they're interviewing Zuckerberg or Dorsey or, you know, uh, it, I'm just like, do you, do you guys even use these platforms? But yeah, so that's a perfect transition to the final question. In your opinion, how involved do you think the government should be with these digital platforms? Like, should they have more regulation of the platforms? Should they break up what they see are monopolies? Or should the digital platforms be able to regulate themselves while the free market, you know, kind of decides which platforms they use? Like, if they don't like it, they could just use another platform. Is that a possibility in your eyes? I mean, look, I think that governments do need to regulate platforms in some way. Um, I'm very skeptical of the regulatory conversation in the United States. Um, I'm also skeptical of, of the laws that we have in the United States, right? So like if I were starting over again, I don't think that I would have gone with Section 230 as it is. But we have what we have. And so, you know, breaking it down is not going to necessarily create the solutions that we want to. Um so, you know, I do think that some of the more positive regulatory ideas, such as forcing companies to be more transparent or forcing them to require consent from users when they change the rules, um, you know, stuff like the, the global, uh, sorry, not global, general data protection regulation, GDPR in Europe. I think that's a fairly positive example of regulation. Um, but I, I do agree. So you asked, should they break up what they see are monopolies? I think that, um, yes. I think competition is not going to be the solution to speech issues necessarily, but it is still a really, really important thing because more competition creates more opportunities for new companies to come about. And that gives us more options as people. Um, we get to choose different types of content moderation models, different privacy models. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think all companies should be the same, right? Um, and then lastly, should digital, I think um, that digital platforms should have some um, ability to regulate themselves. I think that they should be able to choose what they want users to be able to say to a certain point, right? Once they start to become as big as Facebook, um, I think that that's where the issue is. And I, you know, I mean, I think also, as I note in the book, some of the issue here is with the history of these companies. They promise to be one thing, they've become another thing entirely. And so I think companies need to be more mindful when they're starting out about what they're promising their users, because you can't just then do a flip-flop on them, um, which, you know, obviously governments do this all the time too, as a sidebar. 
very very well said yeah there i i too i agree that there should be you know some regulation and i think it's very difficult to create competition when these these companies are so 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 massive but but anyways anyways jillian i loved your book these were amazing answers and do you have anything else you would like to say uh to our lovely audience out there. I really appreciate you asking me these really thoughtful questions. Um, it's obvious to me that you read <laughs> a ton of stuff. Um, I don't normally get questions this thoughtful from, um, from well, from most folks, frankly. Um, so these are fantastic. Um, thank you again. Uh, yeah, and I mean, if folks wanna follow me on Twitter, I'm Jillian C. York on Twitter, JillianCYork.com is my website. And in terms of upcoming projects, um, I'm really excited for the a revamp that we're doing at EFF where I work, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, we've got this project called OnlineCensorship.org that came about um, as an idea almost a decade ago. And what we were trying to do was capture users' experience with content removals. Um, we ran into a bunch of snafus along the way, and the project's been kind of stagnant, dormant for a while. But we're about to revamp it to um, to do a better job of tracking how... U.S. and European regulations are going to impact people throughout the rest of the world and particularly in the global south. So I'm very excited to see that come to fruition. Um, so thank you again, Chris. Uh, and yeah, I hope folks like the book. What an epic conversation with Jillian. Jillian, thank you so much for being here. And everybody, everybody listening, make sure you check out the description down below. Uh, I will have a link to Jillian's book, Silicon Values. It was such a great book like me i'm kind of you know sometimes and i think uh, a lot of people or maybe i'm just you know assuming this a lot of people you know we, we focus more so on the issues going on you know in the united states or wherever we're from right and i was i was really surprised by her book uh, because it talked about you know more global things and you know there's more of a nuanced conversation about how social media and uh you know different uh societies re, uh, you know, interact with social media in different parts of the world. So yeah, definitely read her book. It was such a good, good, good book. It's linked down below. I also have her social media, her Twitter down below, as well as her organization. Make sure you're following up with that. Um, but yeah, if you're following her on Twitter, she's she's pretty active. That's how I actually, you know, met her. Um, so yeah, you'll you'll get all the updates there. So thank you again, Jillian, for coming on. And everybody out there, Thank you for listening. This is the second episode. I hope you're enjoying this format. The authors we're having come on. I'm, I, I, I'm trying to get a good variety of everything. Uh, I have a bunch of authors already who we've recorded this and they'll be coming up. So this is every week. I don't even think I mentioned this last week, but every single week on Wednesdays, brand new episodes. But the better thing you should do to make sure that you don't miss any of these episodes, well, one of them, if you're listening on Apple, subscribe. And you know what would help me out? You know what would help your buddy Chris out? Leave a review. Leave a review. A good, no, it doesn't even have to be good. I won't do that to you. Leave an honest review, right? So if you have critiques, I'll listen to it. But yeah, subscribe on Apple. Leave a review. If you're listening on Spotify, uh, make sure you follow it there. All this kind of stuff helps the algorithm. So since this is a brand new podcast, I need all the help I can get, you know, for the algorithms to spread this stuff and everything like that. Uh, share it with your friends, your family. You know, I, I just, I love reading books. I love to learn. I love talking to authors about all these different subjects. And I hope you're enjoying this too. But yeah, 
the other way you won't miss any episodes or anything else I'm working on, because I do a lot of stuff, uh, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. That's always down in the description. And if you want to support the podcast in any way, down below you'll see that there's a link to my Patreon. And if you become a patron, you get access to the, the books I've personally written. You get those for free. Um, I'm working on some exclusive content over there. So you can become a patron if you want to support, or you can just go to the website, TheRewiredSoul.com and pick up one of my ebooks or audiobooks there. And I also have like affiliate links for like BetterHelp Online Therapy because I'm all about mental health and everything like that. Anyways, just if you can't do any of that stuff, it's cool. All you gotta do is just listen, keep coming back, and, and share this with people you think might enjoy the podcast. Anyways, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day and we have a great episode coming next week. So stay tuned. I'll see y'all next time.